1: morning Christ Fellowship. I'm excited for today's message. Back in January, we started the series titled Anchored. And it's been an amazing series, I'm sure you can agree. Our anchor is our hope in Jesus. As a matter of fact, the book of John calls Jesus the word. So we're really anchoring on the word. We've been diving into God's word for this very reason, because hearing the word is what builds our faith. And let's look at reality. people. When, when things get tough, when things fail in life, what people do is they lean on what they believe. Therefore, it's really important that we know what we believe so that that can hold us down just like an anchor. And that's the whole point of this series. So today we're going to look at multiple books. 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Jude. It sounds like a lot, but it is simplified, as you'll see. And I want to look at some basic information of each book right now just to give you an idea of what we're talking about this morning. So 1 John was written by John the Apostle. He was a disciple of Jesus who also wrote the Gospel of John. And this book is five chapters long. It's called an epistle. In other words, it's a letter. That's pretty much what it means. And the letter was written around AD 85 to 95. That was the timing of this this writing. It was most likely written to Christians in Ephesus. The second, second book, 2 second John, is also written by John the Apostle. And the book only has one chapter. It's also an epistle. You'll see there are a lot of similarities between these books. This letter is also estimated to have been written around the same time, AD 85 to 95. And it was written to the lady and her children. You'll see it's actually uh, quoted there, the lady and her children. So this was most likely an individual person where the first letter, first John was written to a whole group of Christians. This one most likely was written to a lady and a a specific person who raised their children in faith. Although some do believe that this is figurative language and they believe that it's a specific church and it's members. So it is a possibility, but there are a lot of things that make it seem like it was an, an individual person. And one of those things that make you think that is third John third John was written by john the apostle it's only one chapter long it's an epistle again another letter also within the same range of dates 85 to 95 and this was written to a man a man named gaius it was a specific person that it was written to and similar to second john it was written to this specific person lastly jude the book of jude was written by this is pretty neat if you've never heard of this it was written by jude which was Jesus's brother. I mean, like biological brother, son of Mary and Joseph. You've never really heard about Jude at all for the most part in the Bible. But here, this is actually a book written by him. And it's only one chapter long. Like, you kind of messed up. Jesus, you couldn't give your, your brother a little bit of a longer book. You gave him one chapter, but he squeezed them in there, right? He got a book in. Good for him. Let's give it up for Jude. Yeah, Jude. You got, you got your credit there. It's an epistle. It's another letter. Now, there isn't a narrow estimation of when this was written. There's not a lot we know about Jude, but it's estimated to have been written around AD 60 to 80. That's a good range. That's a comfortable range to say um, that this was written. And the other thing is the audience is unknown. Like we have no clue who he wrote it to. I mean, there's some speculation, but there's nothing concrete that we can say. He definitely wrote it to this group of people. Now, considering these dates, just to give you a time frame, remember Jesus was crucified around AD 30 to 33. So all of these books that we just mentioned were written within 65 years or less of when Jesus was crucified. And both authors, John and Jude, obviously knew Jesus personally. Now, although there are four books, there's a common thread in all four of them. I mean, there are a lot of Nice little nuggets throughout too. But there's a common thread that you'll see in all four books that we're going to speak of this morning. And that common thread is all four letters warn believers about false teachers. False teachers. And I want to show you where you can read that. Starting with 1 John chapter 4. It says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Because many false prophets have co- have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming coming, and even now is already in the world. So that's 1 John. Now let's look at 2 John. Uh, uh, verse 7. It's only one chapter, so we don't have to say one verse 7, but... Pretty much the same thing. I say this because many deceivers who do do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Now, 3 John, verses 9 and 10. I wrote to the church, but I'm going to butcher this name. Oops. Uh, I I, I practiced this. I promise. I practiced this name a thousand times and I still forget it. I wrote to the church, but uh, Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will not welcome us. So when I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, spreading malicious nonsense about us. Not satisfied with that, he even refused. I got to stop for a second. Deatrophies, he was a really courageous dude because think about this. He would go against John, one of the disciples that actually walked with Jesus. He was a crazy dude. He really was. It's crazy. Not satisfied with that, he even refuses to welcome other believers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Now it's worth noting, Diotrephes isn't labeled as a false uh, a false teacher technically by John, but he like walks that line. He walks that line really, really carefully because he opposes John's letters and the missionaries that they're sending. But he doesn't flat out say like, this is a false teacher, you need to kick him out. He didn't say anything like that, but he was close to it. And now Jude, Jude chapter four, um, forgive me, verse four, or one verse four, For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. See, all of these four books give clear warnings about false teachers very clearly. But let me tell you, it doesn't even start there. It actually started a book before that in second Peter. As a matter of fact, I think second Peter, second Peter goes in even more. Like he gets super explicit. He gives them a whole chapter. These were just verses. Peter went in on him for a whole chapter. I want to read just the first three verses from chapter two. So second Peter chapter two, verses one, two, and three, just to see that this is like a, this is a thing. This is a, a real thing here that they're addressing, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, which is false teachings, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and the destruction has not been sleeping. Like He went in further than John. John was kind of nice when you compare it because Peter went in on them like crazy. And if you want to read the rest of chapter two in second Peter, you can go back to it and you'll see, but there's one verse that stands out to me the most. I'm going to reread it. And it's verse that says, many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. That stands out to me like crazy. In other words, many people will fall for their lies and start following these false teachers. They'll actually start following them. And because of this, that second part is the one that really gets me. And because of this, people in general will have little value and little respect for truth. Little value and little respect for truth. In other words, some will fall for their lies and follow those false teachers. And now because of what they see happening, people in general in public will, st- will have little value and respect for truth. The reason this verse tugs at me is because I feel like it's speaking about today. I feel like that's exactly what's going on in our world today. And I think you agree with me if you think about what the world we live in right now. Going back to the letters of John and Jude. Some of these false teachers of the time were shedding doubt in the humanity of Jesus. That's the main thing that John was addressing. This specific false teaching that Jesus was never actually human. They believed that all matter is evil and all only spirit is good. That was the belief that they had, these false teachers. Some of the early Gnostics, those that believed this false teaching, believed that Jesus only appeared to be human, but he wasn't actually human. Some of them even thought um, the spirit of Jesus entered the body of the the human Jesus when he was baptized. So it's like a weird combination that they were kind of playing there. But basically, these false teachers were against the idea that Jesus was actually a physical human being. That he didn't, you know, they didn't believe that it was God that came down and became human. In other words, they were against the story of Christmas. Like, who's against the story of Christmas? They were completely against the story of Christmas, what we celebrate, which is Jesus becoming human. Our God, our Creator, becoming a human being, entering this world and limiting himself within the physical realm. They were against that. And it was a very confusing lie where a lot of people followed. And John wrote this addressing this issue. He says, in Second John one verse seven, I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the Antichrist. And in First John verses one through three, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. So he can say that because he was the type of Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He can say, my eyes have seen him. My hands have touched him. I know he was real. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and has appeared to us. See, John was clearly refuting this lie that the false teachers were spreading, that Jesus wasn't human. This lie seems subtle, but it's not subtle. And that's how, well, we're kind of getting into that later. But the, the hardest lies are the ones that seem subtle, but they're not subtle. They're not subtle because at least their damage isn't subtle. It seems subtle, but it's a dangerous contradiction to our faith. It's very dangerous. Why? If Jesus wasn't human, if he never became a physical person, then how could his death pay for our sin? How could his death pay for our sin if he wasn't a human being that came down the earth? Jesus did become flesh and in becoming flesh, he lived a human life perfectly. He lived it perfectly. And he submitted himself to, to the limits of a human being. He didn't deserve death, but he, he lived life perfectly, right? Then he gave up his life, taking on the consequences of our sin on his back through his death. And that was a physical death. He did all that in the physical body. So these false teachers that John was addressing were against that idea. Essentially, they were against the gospel of Jesus. That's what they were against. And John wants his readers to see the clear distinction between the truth and the lie. He wants them to see a clear distinction of what's real gospel, the true gospel, and the false gospel. That's what he wanted to see. In fact, what he does throughout 1 John is he shows opposing contrasts. So if you look at 1 John, you'll see he shows the contrast of light and darkness. He shows the contrast of sin and forgiveness. He shows the contrast of truth and a lie. He shows the contrast of love and hate. He wanted to make a clear line between truth and a lie because that's the very thing false teachers were making unclear. They were making that line very unclear to see. See, false teachers are barely a new thing. They weren't new in John's time. As a matter of fact, we can go all the way back to the, to the beginning of humanity. We can go all the way back to the beginning, of, which is in the book of Genesis. The original false teacher goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, and we can trace it back to the serpent in the Garden of Eden, which was Satan. That's the originator. He's the father of lies. I want to read Genesis chapter three, verses one, two, and three. And I know you know this story, but I want you to to look at, like I want you to kind of dissecting that and look at the strategy. Look what he does here. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, "Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden?" The woman said to the serpent, "We may eat from the trees in the garden." But God did say you must not eat, from the, uh, eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her And he ate it. See, Satan's question is really crafty in the beginning of this. His question was, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? See, even knew it wasn't true. Like that was an easy question to answer. It was really easy for her. She even said the truth right after that. She said what God actually told her. But Satan's whole purpose with this question wasn't to get her to give the wrong answer. His whole purpose with this question was to plant that seed of doubt. That's what his lie did. He planted the seed of doubt. Part of Satan's strategy to keep us, by the way, Satan's whole strategy in this world is to keep us separate from God. That's what he does. And part of his strategy to do that is to distort the truth. That's what he does. He distorts the truth. So he started up with this lie that was easy to notice. She was like, but think about it. I mean, Poor Eve, right? You have to have some sympathy. This is the first lie ever said in the history of humanity. Like, of course she was going to fall for it. She didn't realize lies existed. She fell right for it and so did Adam. And she fell for it. And what it did was it planted that seed of doubt. It makes, what he does is he makes the line between the truth and the the lie as blurry as possible. He makes it as blurry as possible. So you can't really distinguish the, the, the two. His goal is always to steal, kill, and destroy. And he goes by any means about it. That's his goal. See, Satan still spreads lies today. His, his business plan hasn't changed. He's still about his business of spreading lies. devil is still about his business even now. He's still distorting the truth even today. He finds a crash between the lines even today. He makes that line blurry even today. He finds ways to make it hard to separate the truth from a lie. He manipulates. He bends the truth. He changes what things mean. He wants to change the meaning of everything God made. He wants to change the meaning of everything God created. He wants to change the meaning of what murder means. He wants to change the meaning of what marriage means. He wants to change the meaning of what family means. He wants to change the meaning of what gender means. He wants to change the meaning of what church is. He wants to change the meaning of what truth really is. Because his job is to distort the truth. To lie. To trick you. To make you to fall for the traps that he's setting. To keep you away from God. That's what his business is all about. To spread false truth. To spread lies and make you believe it as if it were true. And then he uses false teachers to bring in those lies and confuse the church. He brings it in right through those doors and not just these doors, every church in the world. And false teachers walk in and they confuse the church. They confuse people. How many false teachers have come into the Christian church and led people away from the truth? It's been happening from the start. We see it in these letters of the New Testament right from the beginning of the church, and the number of lies you can't even count. Just think about the world today. What are some popular false teachings in America today? I want to list a few to see if you recognize them. The first one I want to highlight is earning your salvation. That's a false gospel. That's the false gospel of grace plus works. Jesus plus whatever blank you want to submit there. Many people believe that their good deeds or will put them in right standing with God. And the truth is that the cost of sin aren't good deeds. That's not the cost of sin. Oh, my sin can be outweighed by my good deeds. No way. One sin can't be covered by a million good deeds. The cost of sin is death. That's the only price for your sins. Your good deeds are done in vain if you do them trying to earn a salvation that only Christ gets credit for. You can't get credit for that. It doesn't belong to you. You weren't on that cross, thankfully. Because if you were on the cross, you, have, you would have only died for your sins. You would have been paying the consequence of your own sins. If I were on the cross, I would have been dying for my own sins. And I would, have, I would have paid the whole price. Jesus on the cross covered everyone's sins. He's the only one that gets credit for it. And because of him, we have eternal life. Another one, another false gospel. Permissive sin. The false gospel that God's love is so unconditional, nothing about your life has to change. Since grace covers sin, this is the false belief. Since grace covers sin, a sinful lifestyle is now permissive. It's allowed. It's okay. Many people live life believing that how you, li- how you live your life has nothing to do with your salvation. But that's not true. That's not true. The truth is how you live your life should reflect your salvation. It should be a byproduct of your salvation. If your life isn't living right, you need to check back yourself. Am I walking? Am I not walking right? Is God really with me? Have I really allowed him in my life? You need to check that because that's a false gospel that you can just live however you please. Another one is prosperity. Many, many people believe that because we're Christian, God promises to make us wealthy Wealth in material things should be an expectation. Prayer is used as a tool to get God to give you what you want. Giving tithes and offerings is done to be compensated financially by God. And the truth is, God promises one thing. He doesn't promise us wealth. He promises us to suffer. No amens for that one, right? He promises to suffer. Jesus himself was a suffering servant. How can we expect, Jesus, you came here, you suffered. You were poor. You were beaten. You were you know, you went through everything you went through just so, also for, just so we can live in prosperity here in this world. No, his promises are prosperity in the heavenly realms. Not right here. No, that doesn't mean God doesn't bless us. He can bless us. As a matter of fact, we are blessed. We are very blessed. It's not to say that he can't bless us. But we will endure hardship as Christians because the world will hate us as it hated him. We're very blessed financially and in many other ways. But financial blessings are nowhere near the top of God's list of priorities for his children. Nowhere near the top. Not to say he won't give it to you. Not to say he can't give it to you. If he gives it to you, it's for a reason. It's not just to make you feel good. It's not just to prove to you that you're saved. How many people in the world are broke and they love Jesus? How many people live in this world and they're completely poor and they have great faith and they're walking with Jesus? It's not a sign of being with Christ just because you're wealthy. Another one is these new age ideas. This idea of I'm good as long as I'm a spiritual person. People think all spiritual ideas are superior. That goes back to the idea that we just read in uh, all of those letters of John, right? Jesus couldn't be physical matter because all physical matter is evil. Only the spirit is good. And the truth is there are a whole lot of spiritual ideas out there that are completely away from God completely away from God. And people believe it. Many people use this idea of being spiritual as an excuse to pick and choose what they want to believe about God. When I hear people say, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. I have an automatic red flag that pops up. Why? Automatically. Why? Because as soon as I hear that, what normally follows is this statement. It's that they believe that God exists and they might even throw Jesus in a mix But what they believe about God and what they believe about Jesus is just stuff that makes them feel good. They're chasing, you know, spiritual feelings, pretty much. It's really it's really spiritual. It's really the cover of spiritual really emotionalism is what they're chasing. They want to feel good. They want a spiritual experience that makes them feel close to God. But when they get to the hard stuff about God, I don't want to believe that that doesn't feel good. That's this idea that everything spiritual is above all. They pick and choose what they want to believe about God. And then the last one that I'd like to highlight is that there are many ways to God. Some people believe that salvation can be found by many avenues. You can go down Elizabeth Ave. You can go down Adams Ave. You can go down North Ave. You can go down all these different ways to find Jesus or to find to find salvation. They think different beliefs can lead to salvation if followed with sincerity, and that's not true. The truth is Jesus is inclusive in the sense that he offers salvation to everyone. He doesn't deny that offer to anyone. Anyone can receive Jesus if they choose to. He's inclusive in that sense, but he's exclusive. He's exclusive in the sense that he's the only way to receive that salvation. The only way to receive that salvation is through Jesus, because he's the only one that was on the cross. Who else did that for you? So he's inclusive that it's for everyone, but he's exclusive that he's the only way to get it. There's no other way to eternal life but through Jesus. There's no other way to the Father but through Jesus. There's no other way to heaven but through Jesus. See, the truth, the counter to false teachings is knowing and living by the truth. See, we're almost done with the whole Bible, actually, right now, believe it or not. It's crazy. Uh, right As we speak, we're covering the books 62 63, 64, 65. There are only 66 books in the Bible. And we're covering 62, 63, 64. Next week is the last book. And we spent the whole year learning the truth of God's word, learning about his nature, learning about his character. You know, knowing God's word and living by it is the best counter to Satan's strategy of distorting truth. And I want to read what uh, John says in a couple of his books. In 2 John verses 1 through 4, It says, the elder, he's the elder, to the lady chosen by God and to her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in love and truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth just as the father commanded us. And in third John verses three and four, it gave me great joy. When some believers came and testified about your faithfulness to the truth, telling how you continue to walk in it. I have no greater joy than to hear that. My children are walking in the truth. The truth about Jesus is the most important truth to know because he is the truth. Jesus says it in the gospel of John. I am the way the truth and the life. He says it clear. He can't say it any more clear than that, I want to read the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is something that the early church put together um, in the early centuries because of this very reason, to counter, to refute these false teachings that were going around. Because again, false teachers were were there from the beginning. And look at what this says. It's something they put together. It articulates the foundational beliefs of our Christian faith. And I'm sure you've heard this before. The Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Which, by the way, Holy uh, Catholic means universal. So it's not selecting one denomination over the other denomination over the other. It's saying the the, the Christian Church, it's not one denomination. It's all of us. The, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the Communion of Saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. These are the core beliefs of the Christian faith. Throughout this entire year, we've been learning about these very beliefs, these very truths about Jesus. But I have a couple of reflection questions for you that I'd like you to consider even right now. Number one is, and I just want you to kind of answer it internally. After everything we've been learning about the word this, uh, this year, do you truly believe in Jesus? And I'll ask a couple of clarifying questions there. After going through this series, have these truths of Jesus been cemented in your heart? Have they been cemented in your heart? Have you placed your faith in Jesus above everything else? Like there's nothing above Jesus when it comes to your faith. Do you believe what the Bible says about Jesus? Jesus being God, becoming human. He died for our sins. He was resurrected by the power of the father. And he will return to us to bring us to heaven. He will return to bring us to heaven. You know, how, how true are those things in your life now? How true are they? How, how much are, have they been cemented in your heart? See, just like John uses opposing contrasts to paint a picture, light and darkness, sin and, and its consequences and forgiveness, love and hate, God uses separation as well. He uses separation as well. We're gonna go back to the book of Genesis once more. And the book of Genesis shows how God first separated things. Then he filled it. He separated, then he filled it. Billy explained this extremely well back in August. If you need to go check it out, go back. You can find it on the website or on Facebook, YouTube, whatever you got to do. It's a great teaching that he shared. He explained how how God separated light and darkness, sky and sea, land and sea. But you can take it a step further. You can actually go more with this because God continued to separate. God kept going with it. He separated male and female. And when a man and woman unite, they separated from their parents, from their mother and their father. This is all in the book of Genesis. God was doing these separations back then too. Jesus used a separation in the book of John. He had just finished the miracle of feeding 5,000 people. And there was actually more people than that because that was only counting the men. You know, the women and children, who knows how many thousands there really, really were. And it was this miracle of like, you know, multiplying the food. Really, it was more since obviously it was counting more people. Uh, it wasn't counting all the people. The people were so amazed that they started saying great things about Jesus. And the next day they went up to him and Jesus called them out. Jesus actually called them out and said, listen, you guys are only following me because I fed you. Like you like my food. You, you know, you dug my, you want me to open a restaurant. You want, you want my food. I get it. You've only followed me because you want more food. See, he was trying to help the crowd see past just the physical. Look at what he says in John chapter six, verses 35 and 36. The word says, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, as I told you, you have seen me and still you did not believe. In other words, you went through this miracle and still you did not believe. Why? Because you don't really want to believe in me. You just want my food. You just want the thing that you want, whatever that. And for us, remember, it could be anything. It might not be food. It might be other things. You just want this. You don't really want me. That's what he was saying. The back and forth begins to get a little intense because they don't understand the meaning of what he's saying. Like he said, I'm the bread of life. What does that mean? They even begin to argue sharply against his words. And then he says this in John uh, verses 53 and 50, uh, sorry, six, 53 through 56. This this is a big one, ready? Jesus said to them, very, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Even right now, some people are confused. Like, What is he talking about? What are you talking about? I have to eat you. I remember the first time in the beginning, I would read this. like, Jesus, why would you say that? Of course they're going to, like, you're going to say something like that? They're not going to understand that. What are you doing here? Why are you saying that? Once Jesus said this, many of those that were following him turned back and no longer followed him. Once he said that, remember, we talked about thousands of people, pretty much everyone left. And in uh, verses 67 through 69, I want to read this part too. Jesus turns to his disciples, his 12 disciples. And he says, you do not want to leave two, do you? Jesus asked the 12 Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Of course, we can read this and understand what Jesus was saying, because we're looking at it backwards now. We can use hindsight to figure out what he was talking about. We know that in a short period of time, Jesus is going to lay down his life as a sacrifice for our sins. We know that. We understand that. Even his disciples didn't know that yet. His body will be pierced. His blood will be shed. We get the metaphor. We see it. We know that eating his flesh and drinking his blood is a metaphor for receiving his salvation through his sacrifice. It was a foreshadowing of what he was going to do. But no one understood it then when he said it. No one. No one got that. And this is the crazy part. I'm not not in awe or, or I'm not like astonished by all the people that walked away. I'm amazed by the people that stayed. I'm in awe of the people that stayed. Why? As hard as it was to hear, the 12 disciples never left. As crazy as it sounded, they knew, hey, Jesus ain't crazy. Like what he said sounds a little crazy, but Jesus isn't crazy. I know him. I'm staying here. Peter said, where am I going to go? You're the holy one. I don't know what you're saying. I don't get it, but I'm staying right here. They knew who he was. They knew the truth about who he was. They were willing to stand on the truth of who he was, even though they didn't understand what he was saying. They knew the truth of who he was, and they stood on it. See, why did Jesus say this? He was separating the sheep from the goats. He was separating the sheep from the goats. He knew that most of the people following him didn't really believe in him. They they didn't really love him. They didn't really believe in him. They just wanted the things that they could get from him. With just those words, he knew he would separate the sheep from the goats. I want to go to Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 and 33. I got to read this so you can see where this is coming from. When a son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right hand and goats on his left. And I tell you, there's a distinction between these two. I hope you understand. One side is good. One side is not good. One side is love. One side is hate. One side is, you know, forgiveness and forgiveness of sins. The other one is not. He's separating the sheep from the goats for a reason. My question this morning is, are you a sheep or a goat? Are you a sheep or a goat? And don't tell me I want you to think about this. Talk to God about this. Are you a sheep or a goat? God is still doing this today. If you're willing to see it this way, the pandemic did a whole lot of separating. If you're willing to see it this way, the whole... the You know, the pandemic did a whole lot of separating. It was a season of sifting. It was a season of sifting. Throughout the pandemic, faith got rocked, and not just a little bit. And at the end of it, two things happened. Either you grew in faith or you shrunk back. There was no in between. Either your faith grew at the end. I'm not saying, hey, you might have gone through things in the middle. But at the end of it, you were either standing or you walked away. You either went forward or you went backwards. Forgive me. That's all that happened. It's one of the two things. In fact, if you're back in church today, it's because you realize I can't do this on my own. I can't do this on my own. The pandemic confirmed what you already knew, that I need Jesus. I'm in dire need of Jesus in my life. You knew that. You've said, I can't walk this by myself. I need to be connected to the body of Christ. I can't do this on my own. Many people haven't made it back because they physically can't, and I get it whether it be that they're due to health or just not being anywhere near the area. That's completely understandable. And I wanna to say to anyone that's connected with us online, if you're connected with us online and it's because you can't physically make it back, understand we're with you. We love you, we're praying for you. This is your family, Christ Fellowship is your home. We love you, we're connected with you. And, I, and thank God for Christ Fellowship being connected throughout the pandemic. That's the way we were able to survive. That's the way we, we were able to get fed through that time because we weren't able to get together physically. If you're online and you're what, this is your home. I get it, but others are physically able to return and have simply decided not to. They've simply decided I don't need to. Maybe they don't say it audibly. Maybe you haven't really said it out loud, but they've simply decided I don't need to be connected to the body. This is good enough for me where I am disconnected from the body of Christ for some watching online. You know, online has not become a temporary supplement, but a complete substitute for the body of Christ. They've been sifted from the body. And if that's you this morning, if you find yourself disconnected from the body, wherever you are, know this. God doesn't want to separate you. He doesn't want you to be away. In other words, he doesn't want you to be away from him. That's not what he wants. But he uses the opportunity like this to make it clear where you stand. He's making it clear where you stand so you see it. He already knows where you are. He wants you to see it. And I promise you, this isn't meant to be offensive. But if you feel convicted, my prayer is that you respond. Respond to the question, am I a sheep or a goat? Respond to the question that the Lord's asking you in this morning. Don't be sifted out. Don't be sifted out. God separates, and I tell you the truth: both sides are not the same. There's light and there's darkness. There's sin with its consequence and there's forgiveness. There's love and there's hate. There's good and there's evil. There's truth and there are lies. There are sheep and there are goats. Which side will you be on? In First John, believers left Jesus. Please listen to this: believers left Jesus. They found the false. Te- oh, I'm sorry. Believers lost uh, left Jesus because they found the false teachings. Easy to believe. So in First John, believers left Jesus because they found the false teachings easy to believe. In the book of John, the crowd walked away from Jesus because they found the truth too hard to believe. I want you to see this. In one case, they left Jesus because they found the lies too easy to believe. And in another case, they left Jesus because they found the truth too hard to believe. In either case... Those that left couldn't sort out the truth from the lies. In either case, those that stayed knew the difference. Those that left couldn't tell the difference. Those that stayed knew the difference. See, what you learn is important. And I hope you've been learning that throughout this year. What we learn about the Lord is important. Because what you learn can turn into what you believe. And what you believe is what you live. You can't shake that. What you learn can turn into what you believe, and what you believe is what you live. That's what you live. Here are a couple signs from the life of a true disciple that John speaks of. Number one, a true disciple of Jesus perseveres. This life is hard. It's not an easy life. No one can walk this life and say it was an easy life. Not even Jesus would say that. But a true disciple of Jesus perseveres. This person goes through sifting and at the end perseveres. Grows stronger in faith instead of shrinking back. That doesn't mean you're not going to go through things. That means you're going to grow through things. A true disciple perseveres. First John says this. You dear children are from God and have overcome them. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. And the second thing. A second sign that, that John shares is a true disciple of Jesus walks in obedience. Second John uh, verse 6 says, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. You now, I love the point that Eddie made last week. To be holy doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect. It's not, it's not, it doesn't mean you're going to walk this life perfectly. Only Jesus did that. But first John has an answer for that. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I'll say that again, because sometimes people need to hear it. God's not saying, you know, if you're not perfect, I'm not with you. He's not saying that at all. He's even saying to the point, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. See, we're not going to be perfect, but we're striving for perfection. Because you want to do that to honor God. You're not trying to earn it. You're doing it out of love. And when you fail, you get back up. And when you fail again, you get back up again. That's the battle of the Christian life. Because he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. To be holy means to be set apart for God. In other words, to be holy means to be separated for God. It means to be a sheep. Sheep from the goats. The question is, What are you? If you're here this morning, you know, answer that question to yourself. If you're watching online, answer this question for yourself. What are you? Are you a sheep or a goat? I want to, before we wrap it up in prayer, I want to give everyone a chance to just kind of reflect a little bit more with God. And I'm going to ask you to just bow your heads and close your eyes. You know, I'd like for everyone to, to just take this chance to reflect. Some of us are here this morning, believing in things that aren't true. In all honesty, none of us have perfected faith. We all miss the mark somewhere. The important thing is that we don't miss the mark. And the most important thing, which is the gospel of Jesus. So I want to give you this chance to talk to God about it. Ask him, God, is there anything I believe about you that's not true? So just close your eyes. I'm going to mention some of these false teachings again. Earning salvation. Some of us might believe that we have to earn our salvation. Every time you make a mistake, you fear that you lose it. And then you get, you get it back after some time passes and you ask for forgiveness and you do a few more good things. But that would be a very fragile way into heaven. That would have been a really weak sacrifice from Jesus on the cross. In fact, it would be impossible to make it to heaven that way because we sin all the time. You don't even know half the sins you commit. God offers us security in our salvation. I know somebody needs to hear this this morning. God offers you security in your salvation. There's nothing you can do to earn it. It's something that he gave to you. It's something that he bought on that cross. Look at what John says in chapter, 1 John chapter 5. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Your security is in the son, not in yourself. You can't earn it. The second one, permissive sin. Some of us believe the other extreme. Since God is a loving God, we can live however we want. Oh, I show my love by, by coming to church and praying sometimes, but I do my own thing. God knows my heart. God knows my heart. You don't realize how offensive that is to God. Because God said on the cross, I poured my whole heart to you. You're just giving me bits and pieces. You don't realize how offensive that thought really is. I'm giving you my all. You're just giving me some. You know, you've heard this before. God loves you so much that he accepts you as you are. But he loves you too much to leave you as you are. If your heart doesn't feel the conviction of your sin... You need to really reevaluate your relationship with Jesus. Because when you accept Jesus, the Holy Spirit begins to dwell in you. It becomes your, his home. And when the Holy Spirit dwells within you, he changes you to look like Jesus. He's not in the business of leaving you as you are. Prosperity. Some of us believe in the gospel of prosperity where evidence of God's love and salvation is in the material and physical favor and blessings. And that's not true. Because again, how about all the poor people in, you know, in the poorest countries in the world? And the Christians that believe in the Lord and they're still living in poverty. God blesses us so we can bless others. But don't judge your standing with God on the blessings. Some of the richest people in the world are the furthest away from God. Don't judge your standing with God on your blessings. Jesus told his disciples this. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but that your names are written in heaven. And we can extend that point to say, don't put any, don't rejoice in anything above the fact that your name is written in the book of life. Your name is written in heaven. Your material blessings don't go there. They don't get you there. It's all Christ's. And the last couple of new age idea. Some of us are overly attracted to spiritual things, to mysticism. You exalt spiritual experiences above all. And of course, we know that God is spiritual and he moves in His spirit. There's no denying it. But there's no need to limit what God can do in the physical realm as well. Think of Jesus on the cross. The most important important spiritual miracle done for us was done in the physical. When Jesus' hands and feet were pierced and his blood was shed, our sins were washed away for eternity. A physical thing caused a spiritual thing. He cleansed our bodies by allowing his body to be crushed. Don't limit what God can do in your life or the ways that he can do things in your life. And the last one, some of us us believe deep down in our hearts or even up front in our minds that there are many ways to God and there are many ways to heaven and that's simply not true. And we can get into the many reasons of why that's not true. You know, why Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life and he's the only one that can claim that. But I'll give you this. Number one, Who else laid their life down and died for you? Who else did that? Who else has been resurrected by the power of God? Defeating sin and death once and for all. No one is the only one. Has anyone else walked this earth in perfection, demonstrating perfection, living a life without sin? No one else is worthy to be called the way, the truth, and a life. Jesus's love is inclusive in the sense that it's available for everyone. But it's exclusive and that it's the only love that can save your soul. Don't fall for false teachings, but lean your life on the truth of Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for making your word available to us. We know that this is the way, the specific way that you reveal, to, uh, reveal yourself to us. You give us general revelation when we look around the world and we see that your creation and we see how beautiful it is and we see how wondrous it is. And we know, Lord, this was done by you. I get it. I see the order of things. I see the purpose of things. I see it in the world. But Lord, we get the specifics from your word. I get to know your heart. And in the world, I get to know your, your power. In your word, I get to know your heart. On that cross, I get to know your heart. My Lord, I pray on this morning that these things that we've learned throughout this year from Genesis and we're going all the way to revelation. I pray Lord that it doesn't just stop as biblical knowledge, Lord, but I pray that it grows into faith because this world wants to break our faith. It wants to shrink our faith. The enemy wants to distort the truth. So we don't know what the truth is. We don't know who you are. My prayer, Lord, is that everything we're learning, we open our hearts so that it can seep down into our hearts and grow into faith, so that no matter what we go through, Lord, we know that you're with us. We know that you're real. Even when you say things that we don't understand, we say the same thing that Peter said, Lord, where else will I go? I have nowhere else to go. I can only stand on you. You're the Holy One. My prayer, Lord, is that everyone here, Lord, everyone here, be sheep, They don't be sifted out, but they be sheep because they can tell the difference between the truth and a lie. And they cling on to the truth, which is you, Jesus. We love you, Lord. And we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you, guys. Enjoy your Sunday.
0: Christ Fellowship of Elizabeth is a Christian community whose mission is to love God, make disciples, and change the world. You can learn all about us by visiting cfofelizabeth.com. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at the Liberty Center in Elizabeth, as well as at various times throughout the week. If you'd like to see a video recording of the full worship service this teaching came from, you can watch On Demand on our YouTube channel, and you can join us live online every week by visiting cfofelizabeth.live. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. Make sure you subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher so you never miss an episode. See you next time.